Welcome to Sea to Shining Sea, a podcast on the American Discovery Trail and walking coast to coast across the USA. This is episode four. I'm Dave Whitson. I'd say this episode is about the American Discovery Trail in West Virginia, but I'd be wrong. It's actually about the ADT in West, by God, Virginia. Thanks to West Virginia Public Radio Station's Wild Wondering West Virginia podcast, I know better now. They uncovered the first print reference to this term in 1926, written by students, in which they pronounced the special capacity of West Virginia girls to hold their liquor. A decade later, an academic article speculated that the deeper origin was linked to a native West Virginian's final frustration with being lumped in with Virginians. Not Virginia! I'm from West, by God, Virginia, he's quoted. As a former resident of Seattle, I can empathize. I'm from Washington, the state, by God, not D.C. After a flat few weeks across Delaware, Maryland, and D.C., the American Discovery Trail finally discovers some hills in West Virginia, climbing to 4,000 feet in the Dolly Sods Wilderness Area, the highest elevation encountered east of the Rockies on the ADT. I knew that much, at least, about the trail's approach to West Virginia. But in order to learn more, I spoke with two people. Up first is Sharon Weekly state coordinator for the ADT in West Virginia, and a real trail angel, in partnership with her husband, Paul. She describes the route in great detail and offers a glimpse of the hospitality that many walkers associate with the state. After that, I'm joined by Gerald D. Swick, a journalist and author whose series on West Virginia histories was a constant presence in the Clarksburg Exponent Telegram for more than 16 years. We talk about the state's Civil War origins and some key historical developments in the realms of natural resources, labor, and education, with some holidays mixed in for good measure. It's episode four of Sea to Shining by God Sea. Hope you enjoy. Sharon Weekly is one of the state coordinators for West Virginia for the American Discovery Trail, along with her husband, Paul. And she joins me now to talk about West Virginia. Thanks for talking with me for the podcast, Sharon. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for your interest in the American Discovery Trail. Yeah, I'm so excited. Even if I weren't getting ready to walk it, I would be really intrigued. I'm wondering how you got drawn into it. What made you interested in the ADT? We had actually never heard of the ADT until about 2006, and that was really only the second year that it was in existence. And there was a mother-daughter team that was hiking the American Discovery Trail to raise funds for and to bring about awareness of a disease called aplastic anemia, Hmm. which the daughter was recovering from. So a local newspaper had written an article about them, and they asked for people to reach out if they could give them a meal or a place to sleep. I found that very interesting, so we did that, and they stayed with us for a couple of nights while they hiked. And after that, we hosted seven hikers that year, and we just continued (laughs) to watch for them along the trail. And when the then-current state coordinator needed to resign to have more time to assist with some family needs, Mm -hmm. we were already pretty involved, so it just seemed like a possible good fit for us to work with it. I'm sure that there are people out there, when they hear you tell the story, that you just sort of open your house to people as they're walking along the American Discovery Trail, that that sounds bold, maybe crazy. And so maybe you could talk just a little bit more about that. What's it like just opening your house to all of these people as they they walk on by? Well, one of the most common responses we have heard is, aren't you afraid of what could happen to you? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and and my comeback for that is maybe I'm more afraid of what could happen to them. Mm. I 
really think they're pretty safe hiking on the trail for the most part. But we have met such a diverse group of people. We've actually hosted either four meals or overnight for one night or several nights, about 136 people now. Wow. And we have met people from foreign countries, people from different religions, different general cultures. And it's been a real eye-opener. And I love seeing how people really are more alike than they're different. I would say probably 99% of our encounters have been really good. Mm. That's amazingly generous of you both to do that. And of course, you're based in West Virginia. So coach me up. What should I and what should every American know about West Virginia? Well, the stereotypical West Virginian is not the true West Virginian. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The people are super friendly and they're caring. And although we have the lowest average family income of all the American Discovery Trail states, Mm -hmm. you'll find they make up for it in friendliness and people will try to give you some sort of hospitality, almost like it's a calling. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like a Southern thing, even though we're not exactly a Southern state. And the people who meet the hikers are always amazed by the journey and always want to hear about it, and they love being able to help if they can. Hmm. In terms of hiking, West Virginia seems difficult because you've been doing so many miles on the C&O, which is so flat, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you have some road walking, and then you have all these hills, and just hmm. hill after hill after hill. So it seems a little hard. For me, that's exciting. I enjoy hilly terrain, so I definitely look towards West Virginia as a a state I'm excited to get to on my walk. And maybe you can help me kind of do a virtual walk through it right now. The ADT's website breaks West Virginia into four stages. So let's go through those one at a time. The first one is coming from the Maryland state line. It goes to, is it Streby? Streby. Streby. All right. See, this is helpful. What's this process like coming in from Maryland, crossing the Potomac into West Virginia and moving through this first stage? The first thing you'll do is cross a bridge that seems fairly rickety. It's a wooden bridge and it (laughs) almost floats on the river. And if you're a hiker, you get to cross that bridge for free. But if you drive across, it does cost you some money. So it's like your first freebie of the trip, maybe. A lot of the beginning section is road walking. It starts out a little bit gentle at first, and there are lots of farms in that area, so it's kind of pretty. This trail in this area is on roads, mm-hmm. but it goes into backcountry roads that are one lane, and you might see one or two cars on the whole trail, so it will feel like you're on a paved trail. I've been looking at it on the map, just Google Map, zooming in, and it's actually really hard to track because it just looks uninhabited. I see Fort Ashby and that's about it. Is it as empty as it seems on Google Maps? We're from West Virginia. It's a rural state, so I don't think it's nearly as empty as it seems. My husband and I both actually hiked the trail and we never felt that we were in the wilderness and there were always houses coming up and farms, people with mobile homes in small little patches of flat ground. So you'll see more than you think you will. (laughs) I think it hides it from the trees if you're looking on a Google map. A lot gets hidden. That makes sense. And that brings up another thing, the trees. The ADT site says that this section includes some of the oldest mountains and hardwood forests in the world. What's the story here? Our Appalachians were supposed to have been formed about 300 million years ago. And they were actually much higher than the Rockies were, but they've worn down over time. And the original forests here were hardwoods. There was oak, chestnut, maple, beech, sycamores down where there, the creek and you could get more water. But you won't find any chestnuts today. 
because a chestnut blight came through, came from Asia in the early 1900s, and by 1950, all the chestnut trees were gone. Almost every single one of them had been wiped out. Wow. But you will still find a lot of the hardwood forest in West Virginia. You mentioned the Appalachians. As a West Coaster, I've heard periodically that the way you're supposed to say it is Appalachian. How should I be pronouncing that? I, you know, <laughs> it can go either way. I hear it both ways here. Here we say Appalachian. Okay, that's great. I'm just trying to not sound like the totally out-of-touch Oregonian, so that's good to know. So that first stage is about 60 miles. The second stage is about 70 miles from Streeby to Nesterville. And the place that stands out in this section is Dolly Sods. Every trail account I read about the ADT through West Virginia involves some sort of <laughs> a pivotal experience, it seems, on Dolly Sods. So, so what is this place? It's a very high plateau, and it has a tundra-like vegetation. Mm-hmm. It's our favorite place of the whole trail. That was our favorite place. And we even took a couple of days and did extra hiking on other trails that were in the Dolly Sods area because it was just such a pretty place. There's an area called Bear Rocks, which is on the eastern edge of Dolly Sods. And sunrise there is just stunning. Fall there is amazing. It's just it's like the whole forest is just alight with color, with the fall colors. And you're looking into actually what would be the state of Virginia from there. But it's hmm. just beautiful, even if it isn't West Virginia, that you can see it from distance. <laughs> the forest road up to the plateau is maybe, I thought it was maybe the hardest part of the whole trail. It's a light gravel road, so it's nice and wide and easy, but it's between four to five miles and it's just so steep. And it seems like it is never going to end. When you get out on the trail, you'll have some meadowy areas. If you're there in late June, you'll probably see mountain laurel, which could sometimes it just almost be enveloped in these big mountain laurel bushes. But also part of the trail is full of rocks and roots, and it's very rough. It can snow any time of the year up there. Mm. And hikers sometimes will get surprised when they come through in April and they get a six-inch snowfall. If you get snow, you have to stay on the trail in Dolly Sod. So if you get snow, you have to take the alternate route and stay on the forest road instead of going through the sods. But Dolly Sods was used as a training area during World War II, and Blackbird Knob, which is, you travel on Blackbird Knob Trail, Blackbird Knob was an artillery target. So they shot shells and mortar into this area. So before the year 2000, they cleared out everything they could find on the trail, but they have no way of knowing how many unexploded mortars there are hidden (laughs) in the wilderness area, so you need to stay on the trail. One was actually found in 2014 by a group of Boy Scouts that was unexploded. And so there's always a danger that they could go off in the right circumstances. So you just have to be careful. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. I'll keep that in mind. The other thing that stands out in this stretch is Blackwater Falls, which a lot of people write about very fondly. So tell me about that. Tell me about the falls. Well, in a state that's called the Mountain State, you'd think there would be a lot of waterfalls, but there actually aren't (laughs) too many waterfalls in West Virginia. It's just one of the best known, maybe because it's part of the state park system. It's only 62 feet high, but it is iconic to our state. And maybe partly it also stands out because the water is tea-colored, kind of brackish-looking, and that's because tannic acid from pine needles, red spruce, and hemlock fall into the river, and it colors the water. With 
all the logging that's gone on in the area, it's not quite as dark as it was if you were here in the 40s or even mm -hmm. when we used to go in the 60s. The water's not quite as dark as it was, but it's still sort of tainted in color, and that's how it gets its name. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's the second part through the state. So we're now 130 miles into West Virginia. And part three takes us from Nesterville to Wilsonburg, a journey of about 85 miles. And when I'm looking again at the route in Google Maps, it seems like there's a big shift here. That the, the terrain and the population shifts at this point. Is, is that accurate? Is this kind of a shifting point in the state layout? It is somewhat. West Virginia pretty much stays hilly until you get almost to the Ohio River. Okay. But the hills aren't as deep. Sometimes they'll seem as long. It's like this long, slow slog uphill or downhill, but not quite as steep. And you will see more houses, more people in this area. And with that, more sizable towns seem to show up. And again, correct me on pronunciation if I get them wrong, but Philippi, West Grafton, Bridgeport, Clarksburg... What should I expect in urban West Virginia and some of those towns along the way? Well, it's hard to call a town with 3,000 people or 5,000 people <laughs> very urban, and that's what happens with Philippi and Grafton. They're both very, very small. Yeah. When you think about those towns, I don't know if you're into country music and you know the song that Miranda Lambert sings called Everybody Dies Famous in a Small Town. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Oh, that's sort of what it's like. Okay. Everybody knows everybody and, and sort of everybody knows everybody's business as well. <laughs> it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the way it is. High school sports are king in almost every county of West Virginia. Everybody is so proud of any sports team that goes to a state championship, whether they're in the sweet 16 of the state or the top 10 of the football playoffs or, or the track teams. Mm -hmm. You know all the kids, you know your neighbors, and neighbors are important. Clarksburg and Bridgeport, they're two different towns, but geographically they're connected. Okay. They have about 25,000 people, so it's one of the top 10 metropolis areas in the state, if you want to call it that. <laughs> But we all say, all the locals say we're going to Clarksburg shopping. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the Walmart and the shopping centers and the malls are all in Bridgeport. But we, we call them Clarksburg. But you will find more wealth evident in the Bridgeport area probably than in any place that you hike through the towns. Okay. And then the last section, 75 miles, uh, Wilsonburg to the Ohio State line. It seems like there are a lot of tunnels here. There are. There are 13 tunnels. Actually, the website says 13 tunnels. I believe there's actually only 12 that you go through and one that is beside the trail that you no longer go through. Ah. There's a tunnel called the Dick Bias Tunnel, mm -hmm. and it was carved through solid rock. It is roughly hewn, but the railroad never put any sort of a lining in it, so it's really kind of fun to go through. Central Station Tunnel is almost half a mile long, mm -hmm. and you really want a light to go through that one, although they have put up some reflectors the last time I was through there. But I still don't like to go through it without a light. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. The Silver Run Tunnel is supposed to be haunted. <laughs> In the late 1800s and early 1900s, there are reports of engineers saying they saw a ghostly figure along the tracks. So legend has it that it was a ghost that was a bride that was killed on her way to her wedding. Wow. I don't believe in ghosts, but <laughs> when I went to that tunnel, the hair literally stood up on my arms. <laughs> wow. I'll keep an eye out. And the, the tunnels feel really good when it's hot and you're hiking and it's hot. It's always nice and cool in the tunnels. So was this whole section a Rails to Trails conversion project? Yes, it was. Okay. It stops, oh, I don't know how far it stops out of Parkersburg, quite a few miles out of Parkersburg. And 
a few miles out of Clarksburg, between Clarksburg and Wilsonburg, there's actually, we've gotten grants and been able to purchase land, and we're making that connection so the trails will go right into those towns, and that is going to be absolutely fabulous. Yeah, that will be great. Reading about this section, the ADT site highlights glass manufacturing, asphalt mining in this area, and and I know when I think about West Virginia, just from a distance, I, I tend to associate it with coal and oil extraction. Is all of that, these industries and extractive fields visible to the walker, or is the walker kind of oblivious to all of that? Okay, I'm going to start with the glass manufacturing and the asphalt mining, and even the coal mining in this area, it just basically doesn't exist anymore. Okay. You will occasionally, in Ritchie County, which is about, I don't know, 30 miles east of Parkersburg, you'll find people digging Mm -hmm. along the trail where the glass factories used to be, the ones that made marbles, and every once in a while they'll unearth an antique marble or vintage marble, so it's not unusual to see people digging just to find some of the old marbles. Hmm. But we do have a huge, huge gas and oil boom going on right now, and it's a whopper of an industry. The trail goes through Harrison, Doddridge, Ritchie, and Wood counties on the western end, and those counties all sit on top of a giant Marcellus shale deposit. And it is very evident along the trail now as there are large well pads. There's a huge water treatment plant that's the first of its kind in the United States. And it's visible from the trail, and there is a mega gas processing plant that sits where a beautiful barn and cattle once grazed in the field by the trail. Now you've got this gigantic industrial complex. Right now you'll see hilltop scarring where they're removing hilltops to fill in floodplains and lots of small gas well locations as well, all visible from the trail. And despite the bad that goes with that, there is some good because Mm -hmm. those gas oil companies, which are being so hard on our land, have also been very big donors for grants to help us get more land and for projects in the schools and in the parks. And they even bought a huge section of land between the county park and the trail so they could get the gas and oil from it, but they didn't want the land, so they donated the land back to the park. And now the park extends almost all the way to the trail, and they're expanding the park a lot. And that's in Doddridge County. That's interesting. So some real benefits to the community in addition to the complicating factors that always accompany oil extraction. There's a lot of money flowing in the county right now. Mm -hmm. It's been good for the economy. It's been good, fairly good for jobs. Unfortunately... Probably more than 50% of the mineral rights are owned by people from out of state. Right. So a lot of local people do not benefit from the gas that's taken from their land. And I would go back to the way it was. (laughs) Given a choice, (laughs) I would go backwards, but you know how that is. You can't go home again. Yeah. Well, that's definitely going to be something to watch out for, and it sounds like something that would be hard to miss. But otherwise, I'm genuinely excited to come see West Virginia. And maybe let's transition at this point to zoom out to some bigger picture questions about the state. And maybe you've already touched on this first one in some of your answers, but if you could pick any time of year to walk the ADT through West Virginia, recognizing that through hikers aren't going to have that kind of luxury, but others might be able to target it and pick a particular moment in time, what's the sweet spot? When is West Virginia at its finest? Probably early October, maybe late September for the mountains, early to mid-October for the rest of West Virginia, because the fall colors are just amazing. I always say I'm a little bit jealous 
because usually when hikers come through West Virginia heading east, Mm -hmm. they start so early that everything is still brown and ugly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't like that they get to go to another state and see it all greened up and flowering when, when we're just, we haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah, that's too bad. I know that as I think about it, it is the place for me in the east half of the state where it's most likely maybe for things to go wrong just because of weather, if the snow hits. It feels like the most complicated of the states that I'll be passing through at that point, but it'll still be fun, I'm sure. Yes. What are some distinctly West Virginian foods or places that walkers should track down? Well, I'm thinking more along the line of foods and pepperoni rolls. Do you have pepperoni rolls in Oregon? No. All right, pepperoni rolls were first made by Italian coal miners by wrapping uh, pepperoni sausage up in bread. Okay. And so now they make them with the pepperoni sausages and these big fluffy buns. They fill them with hot pepper cheese and and other things. But they're absolutely a West Virginia must-have when you're there. (laughs) Another thing might be ramps. Okay. And that's a wild onion that grows in the forest, and we can only get them in the spring. They make your breath terrible. They exude out your pores. Nice. But they are so delicious with fried potatoes or green beans. People put them in cornbread. They put them in pinto beans. And it's just a real springtime treat that everybody looks forward to. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I hope that I'm uh, not too early for that, but I imagine it'll be a little bit close. I already asked you about Appalachia versus Appalachia. What are some place names in West Virginia that every outsider gets wrong or other common mistakes, like things that would immediately mark someone as an outsider? Well... Canaan Valley. Okay. It's not Canaan. Everybody calls it Canaan Valley because in the Bible it's pronounced Canaan. Yeah. And a lot of people know that, so they call it Canaan Valley. We have relatives who come down here from Ohio, and they still call it Canaan Valley. (laughs) (laughs) They'll say, well, that's the way we learned it. That's the way we're going to keep it. (laughs) But it is actually pronounced Canaan. Any creek that you're going to pass, like Sandy Creek, most people in the mountains would call it Sandy Creek. Gotcha. So a lot of things around here are a creek instead of a creek. Same thing with a hollow. You'll go through Denison Holler, but around here, it's a Denison Holler. You know, you're going to go up Denison Holler. Gotcha. So those little things like that. We have a river. It's not exactly along the trail, but you could hear about it. It's called the Monongahela, mm-hmm. but the county, one of the counties it flows through is called the Monongalia, and people get those two things mixed up a lot. <laughs> Another thing hikers ask about is the beeps. Cars will go past them and beep, mm-hmm. and they want to know... Were they mad, or what was that? Yeah. And we always tell them, if it's one or two quick beeps, it's hello. Okay. If it's a long, hard beep, it's get out of my way. (laughs) You have to learn to tell the difference. Yeah. All right. I know to wave back at the first set. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then the the last sort of quick uh, question is, what would be your choice for a zero day? If I felt like I wanted to take one day off in West Virginia, what's the place along the ADT that would be worth just having a a whole day to linger? I will give you two answers here because, as I've said probably too much already, my favorite place to take a day off would be on Dolly Sods and go Mm -hmm. explore some of the other trails. If I wanted a pampered day as (laughs) as a woman, just two blocks off the trail, there's this historic old hotel called the Blinner Hassett in Parkersburg, and it's a pretty amazing place to stay. What's so amazing about it in a nutshell? It's just 
old and historic and, and the woodwork and the old wallpaper, just the way it's set up. The, the light fixtures are original, some of them. It's just beautiful. Gotcha. Well, to wrap up, you've touched on this in some ways, and I know Dolly Sods is definitely the highlight. But is there a broad brushstroke way that you'd sum up the best part of walking the ADT through West Virginia? What is it that's really special about the state? We have a little bit of everything and terrain. We have low mountains. We have farmland. We have valleys. Some of the cities have history connected. You'll see diverse wildlife and birds. The flora is just beautiful if you're here at the right time. And we have pretty amazing people. And so that's why we're called Almost Heaven. (laughs) Almost. That's what it says, almost. Well, and thank you, Sharon, for for telling me all about West Virginia. I'm all the more excited to make it there on the American Discovery Trail. And I hope that you'll add to our list of over 100 people hosted when you come through. Daryl D. Swick is an author and editor. His series on West Virginia histories ran in the Clarksburg Exponent Telegram for more than 16 years and is now available in print form in two published collections. And he joins me now to talk about West Virginia. Thanks for talking with me, Gerald. Oh, I'm happy to do it, Dave. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it for a while. Could we start maybe just with the quick and dirty, essential two to three minute version of West Virginia history? What are the headlines? You can sum up the history of West Virginia in about a half dozen words. (laughs) Topography, geography, natural resources, and transportation. You keep those four things in mind while we're talking. Topography, geography, natural resources, and transportation, because they will tie into just about everything in the state's history. From its break with Virginia to form a new state in the 1860s, because mountainous West Virginia and flat Virginia had very different needs and cultures. The abundance of natural resources in the state meant that we were going to develop an economy based on extraction industries, and that means the state has a long history of boom and bust economies. But getting those natural resources to the market, travel was always a big problem in the mountains until recent years when we've got the interstates and so on. Getting those natural resources to market was the impetus for investors to build railroads. And so a lot of the railroads in West Virginia were created as logging railroads or railroads to carry out coal, and that led to the creation of a lot of towns within the state. I will say that West Virginians feel a a really deep connection to family and to their native state, I think more so than any other state except Texas, which has the same kind of deep tie to the state. A few years ago, I authored a coffee table book, Historic Photos of West Virginia, and the first sentence I put in the book is, there is no such thing as a former West Virginian. <laughs> During the Great Coal Depression of the, the 1950s and early 60s, it was said that West Virginia schools taught the three R's, reading, writing, and the road to Ohio. <laughs> because there was such a, a huge exodus in order to find work in the factories of Ohio and, and points west. But West Virginians did this reluctantly. And in places like Cincinnati that were close enough, the bus lines found that they had to put extra runs on during the weekends because so many West Virginians were coming home for the weekend and then going back to work in the factories during the week. Hmm. And I think the close ties to family may have started because West Virginia was so isolated. Your family didn't live very far away from you. Again, of course, the you know the 20th century, late 20th century started breaking that up more. But these ties still 
continue. I found it interesting. I'd been away from the state for 20 years, moved back. And on Easter or other holidays, I would see all these cars parked in people's yards. And I realized it was because people were coming home Mm. to celebrate with their family. The mountains are really beautiful. I mean, in the spring, you've got the fruit trees and the, the red bud and the dogwood blooming. And summer, you've got all sorts of colors of, of green. In autumn, which I think is the most beautiful time in the state, it looks like the hillsides were painted by Suzanne. Hmm. And in winter, when there's no snow, it can get pretty dark and dreary. But snow simply transforms the state into something absolutely beautiful. And just the beauty of West Virginia and its mountains is just ingrained in the hearts of the people who grew up there. And it calls us home even when we have to leave the state to have greater opportunities. There is, of course, a downside to that. The difficulty of travel in the state until we got better roads meant that if you lived in an isolated area, your pool of potential spouses was limited. (laughs) And after a while, most families in that area would be related to one another in some way. And so your choices were basically to court a kissing cousin, somebody that was related to you, but distantly enough that it was legal for you to marry. And that, I believe, is what created the stereotype that West Virginians go to family reunions to meet girls. God. Uh, and that, that is old joke there. And then when you add to that, uh, that image, the infamous Hatfield-McCoy feud of the late 1800s, that became famous around the world. And so you've got that feud. And then in the early 20th century, you got a lot of portrayals of mountain people in things like Little Abner and Snuffy Smith and the Ma and Paul Kettle movies as being ignorant and the men as being pretty shiftless and lazy. And then the pictures of extreme poverty taken during the Great Depression by uh, WPA photographers. And you put all of that together along with that Kissing Cousins. And outsiders developed an image of the mountain people as inbred hillbillies, and that's a stereotype that sadly still exists. Hmm. Let's go back a little ways. Your books are really great in just how varied they are, the articles that you wrote over the years. You cover a ton of different topics, but if there's one central focus, you wrote a ton about how the Civil War played out in West Virginia. Could you talk about that? What was it like? I will tell you, the part of the reason I wrote so much about the Civil War in West Virginia is because it was the most popular topic among my newspaper readers. And of course, I have a great interest in it as well. I've, I've done a lot of research into Abraham Lincoln's in-laws and other things related to the Civil War. The western counties of Virginia broke away from Virginia when Virginia decided to secede. And that's something that they've been threatening to do for decades. And Virginia seceding finally was the straw that broke the camel back. So West Virginia seceded and I should probably back up just a minute here and say something about this. West Virginia's primary rivers run north. The Monongahela River goes up Pittsburgh and west. The Big and Little Canal River flow into the Ohio. And when river transportation was the main way of transportation in the mountains, that meant that we developed ties closer to northern states and the states of what we now call the Midwest than we had to Richmond Hmm. and the planter culture of eastern Virginia. So we, like every mountainous area of the South, voted against secession, every single one. Then despite what revisionists have tried to say, it's because the mountainous areas just didn't have that many slaves. Right. And it was more beneficial to them to remain with the Union. And West Virginia had developed the culture of, of, as somebody put it in, in 1850, when it looked like there might be a division of the two states then, West Virginia's commerce, culture, and the ties are to the North and the West, not to Eastern Virginia. So Eastern Virginia said, we're leaving the Union. We said, bye-bye, but we're staying put. And that led to 
the creation of a new state, which was pretty controversial because Virginia hadn't given us permission. But one of the things that during Virginia's secession convention, one of the points raised by Westerners was that if war came as a result of secession, and they believed it was certainly going to come, West Virginia would become the Belgium of America with armies going back and forth over it constantly and devastating it. They recognized that this is going to be the first place where the battles are going to be fought because Pennsylvania and Ohio were two of the most powerful states in the nation. And western part of Virginia had a 400-mile contiguous border with those two states. Yeah. Well, the Belgium of America thing didn't come true because simply the mountains limited the movement of armies. But what's known as the first inland battle, some people like to call it the first land battle of the Civil War, was fought June 3rd at Philippi in what's now West Virginia. And a larger Union force surprised and routed a Confederate force. Not too long after that, the Union won another victory at Rich Mountain. By autumn, they had troops at the mouth of the Shenandoah River, and the Confederates had been pushed out of the Big Canal Valley in the south. And from that point on, there really weren't many big battles in West Virginia. It was primarily cavalry raids and bushwhacking between residents who supported the Confederacy and those who supported the Union. The one exception is what's now the Eastern Panhandle, West Virginia. Armies move back and forth through that all the time. Bunker Hill, West Virginia changed hands 57 times. <laughs> and there was another town, I forget which one it was in the Eastern Panhandle, that changed hands over 80 times. But the story of West Virginia in the Civil War is once you get past those initial battles, pretty much one of cavalry raids, especially the Jones and Bowdoin raid that uh, came through in 1863. I'd love to hear more about the statehood process, because it seems like it must have been quite challenging for West Virginia to break off. What was that like? Oh, man. One of the representatives to the, the secession convention, Waitman T. Willie from Morgantown, said that if West Virginia, even though he became a supporter of the new state and became indeed one of our first two U.S. senators, he warned that this was a very dangerous course because we would be committing treason against the Constitution of the United States, treason against the Constitution of Virginia, and treason against the Confederate States of America. <laughs> the Constitution requires a section of a state that wants to form its own state to have the permission of the mother state. And Mama Virginia was not giving us that permission. So when Westerners decided to secede, they embarked on a very, very dangerous course because they were counting on the Congress and Abraham Lincoln to let them come into the Union, even though they didn't have Virginia's permission. I probably should talk a little bit about why Westerners wanted to secede, other than the fact that they wanted to stay in the Union. There have been problems beneath from Western Virginia since before 1820. Thomas Jefferson wrote about how the government in Richmond was not really representing the interests of the Western people. And here we come to that topography. The West is mountainous. The East is flatter, more rolling. The East has developed a large plantation culture, whereas the West was mostly small farms. The only place you found large numbers of slaves in Western Virginia was along river valleys. But some of the bones of contention were Westerners wanted public education for all white children. The planter class in Eastern Virginia said, I pay to educate my own children. I don't want to be taxed to pay for somebody else's children. And some of them literally said, besides what could those peasants of the West, what intellectual capacities would they have to add anything to the state? So it'd be a waste of money to educate them. <laughs> Voting was done by what was known as the Viva Voca system, that you had to stand in front of the election commissioners, I assume, and state how you voted. Westerners wanted a secret ballot. And probably the biggest bone of contention was that Eastern Virginia 
controlled the legislature. And that was true even after the population of Western Virginia surpassed that of the East, because land was being depleted in the East and people were moving out. But because each county got two representatives to the state legislature and Eastern Virginia had more counties, that meant they were going to get more people in there. They also had more representatives in the state Senate. And so West Virginia just didn't have a chance. The state officials, uh, including the governor, were appointed by the legislature. And finally, in 1850, when the South started openly talking about seceding, this is 10 years before they actually did it. But when they started talking about it, that was when things started coming to a a fore. And I I think I mentioned earlier that even outsiders were saying, if Virginia secedes, West Virginia is going to secede from Virginia. Mm -hmm. So that shook up the planters enough because they wanted to keep that West Virginia population if they need them for, for an army in the event of Virginia seceding. So a new constitution was written that went into effect in 1852, and it gave Westerners virtually everything they wanted Hmm. and should have settled the matter, except that it changed the tax code. (laughs) And the tax code now favored people who own large numbers of slaves. Of course it did. Yeah, of course. (laughs) If you owned a slave who was younger than 12, you didn't have to pay any taxes at all on that slave. Hmm. Slaves above that age would be taxed at the most favorable tax rate, which was on real property. And there would be a ceiling of $300 worth of land. Whatever the taxation would be on 300 acres of land, that's what the ceiling would be on taxation on any given slave. What that meant was a Western farmer has, say, $100 worth of cows. He pays 40 cents per hundred. A slave owner with a slave valued at the same amount would pay 11 cents per hundred. And there were some new taxes enacted that also affected Westerners more. So this was the disgruntlement. And because Virginia was so linked into slavery, and Western Virginia not only didn't have much need for slaves, a lot of West Virginia didn't want slavery, partly because of altruistic reasons. They were appalled by the institution, the same as people were in, in literally in every state, including the Deep South. But the presence of slavery depressed wages Because even if you didn't own slaves, you could rent one and pay that slave's owner less than you would pay a white laborer. Because of that, property values were depressed wherever there was slavery. George Washington complained about that because he was a big land speculator in Virginia. And he complained that land in Pennsylvania sold for a higher rate because it didn't have slavery. Hmm. So anyway, by this point, slavery has become the big bone of contention between East and West. But it's multifaceted as to why it was such a bone of contention. Initially. Virginians voted not to secede, overwhelmingly voted not to secede all across the state. But then they hold a secession convention. Some things are happening and they hold a secession convention. And what pushed Virginia into the Southern Confederacy was when Lincoln called for troops uh, to put down the Southern Rebellion and they refused to fight against their Southern brethren. So that's when Eastern Virginia secedes. The Western delegates to that convention had argued strongly against secession. And within days of that convention breaking up, there was a meeting held in Clarksburg, my hometown, to call for a convention to discuss forming a new state. That convention was held in Wheeling. A lot of Westerners still wanted to remain part of Virginia. And so that convention resulted in basically, let's see if we can work something out. But when that didn't happen, another convention was held and the state voted. The people said, let's put it to the vote of the people. And see if they want to remain with Virginia or form a new state. And the popular vote was to form a new state. Now, because this was in violation of the Constitution, 
the Westerners hope hinged on a Supreme Court case that came out of the Door Rebellion in Rhode Island in the 1840s when there were two governments within the state. And this case of the Supreme Court ruled that when two governments exist in a state, each claim to be the legitimate one, then it is up to Congress and the president to decide which one is the legitimate one. So Western Virginians formed what they called the restored government of Virginia. We are the real Virginia, in effect. We are the real government of Virginia, and we are loyal to the Northern cause, to the Union. Despite that, there was a lot of controversy in the Congress over whether or not to admit them because of that constitutional law. Democrats, of course, opposed it because Democrats were the party of the Old South, the conservative party. But eventually, Congress did authorize creating West Virginia, and not only authorized it, they expanded it. The Eastern Panhandle and certain Southern counties were not originally to be part of the state, but a lot of legislators wanted the Southern counties as a buffer against Confederate attacks. And the Eastern Panhandle, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad ran through part of it. And that was the only contiguous link between the East Coast and the Midwest. It would have been absolute military stupidity (laughs) to turn down West Virginia's offer. It would have been political suicide because Eastern Tennessee is watching what's going on, and they're wanting to do the same thing West Virginia did. The Confederates had to keep 25,000 troops there to keep Eastern Tennessee in in the Confederacy. So Congress eventually authorizes the admission of West Virginia as a state. But along the way, a big objection was that West Virginia's constitution still allowed slavery. Even though there weren't a lot of slaves within the state, the slave owners didn't want to lose their property. And so slavery just continued as it was, but the Constitution prohibited any Negro, free or slave, from coming into the state to reside. Wow. Well, when Congress balked at that, Waitman T. Willie, once again, proposed amending the Constitution so that slaves born after the Constitution was passed or after July 4th, 1863, would be free. And those who were older than that would be gradually emancipated. So slavery continued, but it was being phased out. Congress then agreed to let West Virginia in. It goes to Lincoln. He asked his cabinet about this. Is it legal? Is it prudent? And his cabinet split 50-50. So 1863 is winding down. If Lincoln doesn't sign that bill soon, it's going to amount to a pocket veto. And finally, just about New Year's Day, he signed it. And he said, if some people say that this is secession and then we permit it because it is our secession. And he said, if this is secession, there is a difference between secession against the Constitution and secession in favor of the Constitution. Of course, the South didn't see it that way. (laughs) Uh, Still don't. Yeah. I remember a, a woman from Georgia many years ago when I said that I was from a southern state, but we fought for the Union. She looked at him and said, y'all from West Virginia, the great compromise. <laughs> and I mean, she said it with that accent. Yep. So West Virginia was admitted into the Union. It came in six months after Lincoln signed the bill, which ironically made Lincoln the last president to admit a slaveholding state to the Union. <laughs> so West Virginia does come in June 20th, 1863, and it's right around that time that the Jones and Bowdoin raid comes through. And I think a large portion of that was to spread terrorism among the, the people of the West for their disloyalty to Virginia. Wow. That's a great story. It's an amazing story, and so few people in America know it. 
Well, that's a great discussion of the Civil War and the foundations of West Virginia. And there were four other subjects that stood out to me when I was reading through your articles that I'd like to dig into. And the first one is oil and coal, which certainly comes up a lot in West Virginia. That's one of the things that I've long associated with the state. Could you talk about the history of the extraction of oil and coal in West Virginia and their importance? Has it been overstated or is that accurate? It has not been overstated. The economy has long depended on extraction industries, and even before coal was king in West Virginia, salt was salted. Canal red salt was highly valued in the early 19th century. The coal, oil, gas, and then we had a lot of sand and water, which drew glass manufacturers to the state. Today, West Virginia is, is often treated as a joke, as we've talked about, but in the late 1800s, newspapers around the country you frequently see references to West Virginia's bright future. And it was because of all this natural resources. Logging was another big part of it. These industries created jobs, they created towns, but then they dried up as the resources dried up within an area, resulting in the economic depression that you see in so many towns in West Virginia today. Coal started to become important in America, not too many years before the Civil War. Same thing was happening in Europe is we were using up the Eastern forest and coal started to replace that. And then oil came along. Oil had been used as a fuel to some extent for decades, but it started to become more prominent around 1860. Supposedly, that is when the first commercially drilled well was created, a well drilled specifically to find oil. When Western Virginians were drilling holes to try to find salt, a lot of times this viscous black liquid would come bubbling up out of it, and they would curse and move on because they didn't (laughs) think it was worth anything. And as I say, you'll usually see in history that an oil well in Pennsylvania was the first oil well drilled specifically to get oil. Ohio also claims that it had the first. This was in 1860. I have seen a newspaper article from the late 1850s, 1858, I think, talking about how prospectors, so to speak, came into Lewis County, West Virginia, which is, well, Western Virginia then, which is near Weston, and drilled for oil. And when they struck it, it just came gushing out and ran into the little Kanawha River. Of course, nobody was complaining about pollution in those days. <laughs> so coal and oil became the two big things for West Virginia. In fact, that Jones and Bowden raid that I mentioned, towards the end of it, and Bowden went to Burning Springs, West Virginia, where a town had built up around the oil there and demanded ransom or he would burn all the oil and the derricks and they couldn't pay the ransom. So he did. And that was the first military raid on an oil field in all of history. Wow. Supposedly, the oil ran out into a different section of the Little Canal than the one in Lewis County, and it burned the brush and the trees for 100 yards or more on either side of the river. At any rate, going back to talking about the history of the coal mining, it has long been tied to it, and it is still regarded as coal as the king. Right now, fracking is a big thing there to extract natural gas, and that's bringing a boom again to certain areas of the state, but it's also tearing up the roads. And there's a lot of questions about what fracking, ultimately, if it is going to cause problems. I know I have family living in Kansas, and they've been experiencing earthquakes, and they said Oklahoma's had dozens and dozens of earthquakes when they used to have almost none. Yeah, But it's all started since the fracking came in. The second theme that I identified is certainly linked to the first one, and that's labor. I was struck in your writings by the prevalence and violent nature of labor-related conflicts in West Virginia. And that's not to suggest that labor and management have been in harmonious relationships in other states. (laughs) 
But is there something distinct in terms of how this has played out in West Virginia? As you said, I know that there were violent strikes in Indiana, coal miner strikes. And of course, you had the strikes around the steel mills in Pennsylvania and other incidents. But there are some differences in West Virginia. First of all, I think we are the only coal miner strike in which the U.S. Army Air Corps was sent to intimidate the miners with the threat of bombing and scraping them. That was shocking to me reading that article. Yeah, Lieutenant General Billy Mitchell was a big advocate of aerial warfare. And this is 1921. It's it's after World War One, of course. And he fears that the Pentagon is not going to pay adequate attention to airplanes. And so he takes this opportunity and says, I can take a flight of planes over the mountains and we can use it to try to end this strike. There have been an earlier strike around 1914, 15, known as the Paint Creek, Cabin Creek strike that resulted in a tremendous amount of fighting for a couple of years. I think that's the one where the mine owners brought in an armored train with armed guards in it who shot at the miners' encampments as they went by. And the miners' encampments had their families in there. The one where Billy Mitchell came in, several thousand miners decided to march to Logan County to try to free some of their brethren who had been arrested for trying to organize unions. And this resulted in the Battle of Blair Mountain. It's been called the largest armed rebellion in America since the Civil War Hmm. and the largest battle between labor and management in U.S. history. The mine owners had people with machine gun emplacements on Blair Mountain. They had hired guns coming in, basically. But the miners and these people fought for a few days before the miners went home. Mitchell's planes never bombed anybody, but the mine owners did hire some private planes and it is believed that they dropped some bombs. And one of the things I suppose I should say, one of the reasons that I think it was so violent here was because you do not mess with mountain people. <laughs> Our state motto is Montani Semper Libri. Mountaineers always free. My father was a coal miner, and he told me about when there was a strike one time and a strip mine, which was they were usually non-union, was operating. And then one day the union miners went out, met a coal truck that was coming down from the strip mine. They blocked the road, and they overturned a fully loaded coal truck. These were strong men, and they were determined that they were going to get fair wages, better working conditions, and they were willing to fight for it. And they weren't the only one. There was a national railroad strike over in the eastern panhandle. The railroad workers went on strike along with the rest of the country. The local police and the local militia didn't want to do anything against the railroad workers because they're their friends. They're their family members. (laughs) And so uh, the governor called in federal troops to put that down. My mother worked for a nickel pottery. And sometimes when I was in college, I would come back home on the weekends. During times when they were on strike, I would go down and sit with the women who were sitting on the picket line because sometimes it was only women there and they just felt better having a male presence because of fears of violence. Quite frankly, I'm not sure what I could have done, <laughs> but it, it made them feel better. And I put wood in the 50 gallon drums where they had fires for them. People think that these strikes are something of the modern, but by 1863, the Wheeling Intelligencer was complaining about the number of coal mine strikes in the area and how it had caused the price of coal to increase five to eight times. And this was about two or three years after the first miners union, the Association of Miners, was founded out in Illinois. That happened quickly. Yes. The third theme is education. And it seems like (laughs) there might even be more division and conflict in this realm than in labor. What has made education a focus of such divisiveness in West Virginia? 
Western Virginians wanted public education for their children. Yeah. So that desire was very strong when the state began, and the Constitution provided for public education for every white child, and then in 1867, they extended it to include the black children. But education in West Virginia has, for much of its history, been at odds with the need for families to have children working on the farms or working in the factories or working as newsboys or whatever to bring in money for the family. There was a reporter went into some of the factories in West Virginia, and he said the most common age for children in West Virginia apparently is 14 and a half, because that's the answer you will get if you ask these children, many of whom are obviously younger than that, what their age is. 14 was the cutoff. Once the child labor laws were finally enacted, children of 14 and younger could not be employed full time in factories and mines, things like that. So the children were taught to lie and say they were 14 and a half because their families needed the money. Mm-hmm. And because of one generation not getting educated, then frequently they didn't see the need to educate the next generation. And that as long as the coal mines and the factories were around and the railroads, the logging, you could get decent paying jobs without having a high school diploma. So dropout was quite high. I was only the second member of my family to graduate high school and the first to go to college. Wow. And this would obviously well into the history of West Virginia. A movement started after the Civil War for mandatory public education. And this was primarily a northern movement. Southern states opposed it, first of all, because they associated it with Massachusetts and abolitionism. West Virginia is both a southern and a northern state. It's always had that foot personality. So there was that southern opposition to the mandatory education. I remember reading, I think it was a Logan newspaper that talked about when it was mandatory education passed in West Virginia, how it meant the state officials would be going into the homes and pulling half-clad children from their mother's breast in order to take them <laughs> off to some state institution. It's also partisan, Republican versus Democrats. Democrats, again, at that time were the conservative party, the party of the Old South. And that actually almost resulted in West Virginia University dying not long after it was born. It was authorized under Republican legislature in about 1867, I think it was. And when the Democrats got back into power, they really didn't favor having that university there. And of course, it was located about 50 miles south of Pittsburgh. So it really was not convenient to a lot of the people within the state. Conservative politicians didn't want to use taxpayer money to spend on it. After the first two presidents of the university, a former Confederate was put in charge. And that softened things a little bit for the Democrats, even though he didn't stay very long. There is one other reason that there was a bad attitude for public education. Every magisterial district could have its own schools. So you had hundreds of schools in West Virginia, and this system was just rife with corruption, inefficiency, and nepotism. Hmm. The Great Depression ended that because suddenly the counties just couldn't pay for nine months of education. And so a commission formed to study it, and they formed what was known as the County Unit Plan of 1933 that consolidated hundreds of the schools and allowed busing across county lines in order to allow children to go to school in the next county if that's where it was closer. This County Unit Plan worked so well that other states used it as a model to try to address the same problem in their states. The last theme is a little bit lighter. It's about holidays, because West Virginia seems to have had an impact on our calendars. And I see in your writings some references to Mother's Day in particular, but also a bit about Father's Day and Black History Month. So what are the origin stories of those and their West Virginia connection? 
arguably this goes back to those close family ties that I talked about and possibly a desire to honor the contributions of, shall we say, average people instead of, and, and women, whereas our holidays were generally recognizing presidents and men. Mother's Day was the first of these. And that was started by Anna Jarvis, who came from near Grafton, a little town of Webster, which, by the way, the trail, I think, goes close by there. It does. And her home place still stands. She was very impressed by her own mother, whose name was also Ann Jarvis, and hence is frequently known as Mother Jarvis or Mama Jarvis to differentiate the two. But Anna's mother came to believe that unsanitary conditions were what led to the health problems that had caused so many of her own children to die. And so she formed sanitary clubs in the area with the mothers to clean things up. During the Civil War, she made the members of those clubs take an oath not to bring politics into the clubs. And this mother did a great deal to improve the health of the children and the people of that area. And she also did a lot to quell the North-South tensions after the Civil War, because, again, her organizations had taken that oath. So Anna thought of a way to memorialize her, and her own mother had said that it would be nice to have a day that honors mothers. So on May 10th, 1908, there were two Mother's Day celebrations. One was in Philadelphia, where Anna Jarvis was living at the time, and the other was in Grafton, West Virginia. There was an attempt to get Congress to make this a national holiday, and the members of Congress just literally laughed it off the floor. But suffragettes and others spread the idea rapidly through the states, and state after state started approving it. And it became basically a de facto holiday, and Congress finally recognized it. I'll say this from May 10th, 1908. A couple of months later, July 5th, we have what is believed to be the first Father's Day observance in Fairmont, West Virginia, which is near Grafton. A woman there was thinking about her father as she sat in the Mother's Day service that was being held. She thought about her father and about all the fathers who had been killed in the Monongah mine disaster the previous December. That still stands as the worst mining disaster in U.S. history. At least 350 miners were killed when this mine exploded, which meant that a lot of children were left without fathers. So she went to her minister and suggested they have a Father's Day observance, and they did that on July 5th of 1908. It became a circus atmosphere. There were 12,000 people came into the town. There was a carnival. There were speakers and so on, but the church had a quiet ceremony. That accomplished what she wanted to accomplish, and she didn't press on for a Father's Day the way Anna Jarvis did. And it was a woman named Dodd out in Spokane, Washington, who had a Father's Day observance out there and started the push for a national Father's Day. Hmm. Now, there's a, a holiday you may not be aware of. The first Sunday after Labor Day is Grandparents' Day. Really? Yes, it is. Huh. And guess what state got that started? <laughs> it was a grassroots campaign that was initiated by a woman named Marion Herndon McQuaid in 1970, and her husband supported it. West Virginia recognized it three years later, and it became a national observance in 1978. Jimmy Carter signed the, the bill authorizing it. So we have Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Grandparents' Day all coming out of West Virginia. Wow. Now, you mentioned Black History Month. Yeah. Carter G. Woodson, who is known as the father of the study of Black history in America, started Negro History Week to recognize the history of his race in this country. Because as he said, I believe his exact words were something to the effect of a people who don't know where they've come from can't know where they're going. They don't have a future. And so he was the first African-American to graduate with a master's degree from Harvard. His thesis, by the way, was on the division of Virginia and West Virginia. He'd been brought to West Virginia as a child when his father came here to work in the coal mines. But he went to night school, became a teacher, and started his teaching career down around the Huntington area. 
later was a dean at what was originally the West Virginia State College for Negroes at Institute. And he started this Negro History Week to have a national observance for focusing on black history. And eventually that grew into what is now known as Black History Month. Although Woodson spent part of his life out of West Virginia, he got his education and began his teaching career in the state and came back to be a dean at West Virginia State. There is, by the way, a statue of him in Huntington now. Cool. We've been talking a lot about big picture historical trends. You just touched on one place on the American Discovery Trail, Grafton. And to transition into the the final stages of our conversation, I'd love to hear you talk about three points in particular on the American Discovery Trail's route through West Virginia that showed up a lot in your writings. These are Clarksburg, Philippi, and Parkersburg. Could you give us a few things, those of us who are walking, a few things to look out for or things to know about those three places? Sure. Let's start with Clarksburg, which is my hometown. Yeah. It is also the hometown of Confederate Lieutenant General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. He was born there. His father's gravestone is within the boundaries of Clarksburg. The home he was born in was on Main Street. It was raised after the Civil War, but he was raised at nearby Weston. He went to Jackson Mill, which later became the world's first safe 4-H camp, and was raised by his uncle Cummins. Clarksburg, you've got Jackson, Cyrus Vance, who was Jimmy Carter's Secretary of State. And if you read the Pentagon Papers, you will see Vance's name come up <laughs> periodically. John W. Davis, who was possibly the preeminent attorney of the 20th century in America. He argued more cases before the Supreme Court than anybody else. He was ambassador to England, was solicitor general, which is what they called attorney general at the time. And he is most, he was also the Democratic Party's nominee for the presidency in 1924. Ran possibly the most lackluster campaign in American history and, and lost the race. <laughs> but his home district didn't vote for him, despite the fact he was a very respected man in Clarksburg. But he did carry the South because the Ku Klux Klan threw its support behind him, even though in a three candidate race for president, he was the one who most frequently denounced organizations like the Klan. But the South was not about to vote for a Republican, so I voted for him. Davis is probably best remembered because he was the attorney on the opposing side from Thurgood Marshall when Brown versus Board of Education was argued before the Supreme Court. There was actually several states and communities banded together on this to try to preserve segregation. And they hired Davis, whose father had been a very strong states' rights man, and he also believed in the supremacy of the state over the federal he thought that any integration should come at the state level, not through federal mandate. Davis also, when he was Solicitor General, was honored by the African-Americans of Missouri with an award. And a former black assistant attorney general said he did more for our race than any Solicitor General in decades. So he's a complex, controversial man. Tragically, his home was torn down. So that's not there anymore. But when you're passing through Clarksburg, you might ask how you can find the gravestone of Jackson's father. You will find a statue of Stonewall Jackson on his horse, little sorrel, in front of the courthouse. Mm -hmm. You will find an old mansion called Baltimore on Pike Street, which was the library when I was a child. It had been a private residence, and now it is still part of the library, but it holds the genealogy and archival records over there. And they restored some of the floors on the ground floor to the way they might have looked when the family lived there. So if you get a chance, stop by the library and ask if Baltimore is open, go over and look at it. Just down the street from the Baltimore is the Robinson Grand Movie Theater, which was the 13th movie theater in America to have talkies <laughs> because of the relationship of the owner with the studio mogul. It has only recently been restored and reopened for performances and occasional movies within the last year or two. When it reopened, Jay Leno was the headliner. Wow. 
and they've been able to get some pretty good names in there to perform. If you have me going by at night when they've got the whole front lit up, it's really pretty to look at. So just check that out. Now, Philippine. Philippines' biggest claim to fame is First Inland Battle of the Civil War. Frankly, the battle was fought there not because of the importance of Philippi, but because of the importance of Grafton nearby, which is where the B&O Railroad came through there and the Northwest Virginia Railroad came up from Parkersburg to meet the B&O at Grafton. And it was critical to hold that juncture. But Grafton was in a county that was primarily pro-Union. They drove the Confederate militia out. The battle wound up being fought at Philippi in Barber County, which is the county that my ancestry dates to. My ancestor, Anthony Swick, settled there on a Revolutionary War land grant. And the battle was, it was a minor skirmish. It, it wouldn't have attracted much attention later in the war. But because it was the first clash between two forces of any size, it took on a greater significance. And it was over so fast that it became known as the Philippi Races because Confederates who were already planning to move from there to Beverly took off for the town of Beverly after just a short defense. The First Union troops come into the town, came charging through a covered bridge there. That bridge is still there. It was designed by the bridge builder Lemuel Chenoweth. Fortunately, in the late 20th century, a truck exploded inside it. And so the roof and the exterior walls had to be replaced. But the structure of it is still the original bridge. And they dug out the number of bullets from it when they were doing the renovation from the battle. Oh, my God. But one other thing that Philippia is famous for is the mummies. Really? In their museum there, they have several mummies that are believed to have been patients at the mental asylum at Weston who died there and were turned over to a doctor who supposedly had studied, he claimed through the Bible, I'm not sure exactly where he found this in there, but he'd studied mummification and he wanted to try to practice it. And so he mummified some of these bodies. Now, that's the general story. Nobody really knows what the full story is, but you can go into the museum and pay a couple dollars extra and go in to see the mummies. That is a horrifying story. <laughs> it is. And believe me, it's creepy being in the room with them, but you ought to do it. Yeah, I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> now, Parkersburg, down on the Ohio River, as I said, that's where Northwestern Virginia Railroad went from Grafton to Parkersburg. And Parkersburg is in the news right now because the movie that's out, Dark Waters, talking about pollution from the DuPont plant, is based on actual events around Parkersburg. Oh. You may want to see that movie before you go there. Yeah. Parkersburg started out as Thorntonburg because it was a land that belonged to a man named Thornton. He sold it to an Alexander Parker, for whom the town is named. And in between, it was known as Newport for a while. I've often wondered, Captain Alexander Parker, that the town's named for, is from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that's the same area that Mary Todd Lincoln's Parker ancestors come from. And the name Alexander does appear within the family so I'm wondering if perhaps he was a relation of Mary Lincoln's, but I've never been able to prove or disprove that. The big thing at Parkersburg is Blennerhassett Island. Okay. There's a park there now. There's a mansion there. And in the early days of the country, Aaron Burr went there and tried to talk to the Blennerhassetts. He was going to try to go into New Mexico and seize it for the United States. But the way he was going about it meant it was probably an act of treason. And because it was believed the Blennerhassets had helped him, they were brought to trial as well, but were acquitted thanks to the passionate argument by a man named William Wirt. And when the county that Parkersburg is in was split in two, the neighboring county was named Wirt for this attorney. Parkersburg, you can see the Blennerhassett Hotel in Parkersburg, which was built in 1889 when the gas and oil money had the county booming. It's an attractive building. Go into it if you can. Mm -hmm. Parkersburg was also the first West Virginia city to establish a high school for black students. So there's a few things to look into there. Yeah, that's great.
you know, we have covered a ton of ground in this conversation, and you've given us a ton to think about, but we've only scratched the surface of the many, many different topics that you write about in your book. To wrap up, are there one or two other stories that you would highlight as being kind of quintessentially West Virginian stories? You know, there are some columns that are my favorites, like the one about the woman in Alderson who raised an African lion from a cub to a full-grown <laughs> lion that playfully uh, roamed the streets of Alderson and resulted in the town of Alderson being the first and probably only town in America to pass a leash law for lions. <laughs> and then there's the town of Friendly, where right after women got the right to vote in the next election, the mayor of the town told his female secretary to draw up an election ballot, so she did, and only put women's names on it. <laughs> and so women ran the town of Friendly for a while. They lost in the following election, but they had that little claim to fame. That Friendly <laughs> is down fairly close to Parkersburg. But you said quintessential. As I said, West Virginia is such a beautiful, beautiful state. And that is a big part of why they're so strongly in the hearts of those of us who grew up there. I wrote an article one time based on a story from June 1880 that I'd found in a newspaper from the Eastern Panhandle. And this was just a letter that someone wrote to the paper describing a day's visit to Berkeley Springs. I'm going to quote it. It described the mountains, ever-widening vistas of loveliness, gladdened the visions, as the fertile plains dotted with beautiful groves and rural homesteads, where every view was beauty and every breath was an inspiration. And I would say of all the things I've written, quoting that 1880 article, probably the quintessential West Virginia one. Thank you, Gerald. This has been fantastic. I feel like I come out of this with a much richer understanding of your state. I hope so. And I'm going to tell you one other thing. When you're passing through the Clarksburg area, you have got to eat a pepperoni roll. While none of the states encountered to this point are optimally timed for accommodating weather on a westbound thru-hike, West Virginia has proven to be a special challenge, and nowhere more so than Dolly Sods. As an aside, that name seems kind of unfair. Far too innocuous and unthreatening. It doesn't inspire fear at all. Maybe Buzzard's Mount or Frostbite Plateau? I checked it out. I guess the Dolls were a German family of homesteaders who lived here in the 18th century. Well, the sods are a local term for a mountaintop meadow. It's probably too late to change now. And I suppose it's a good fit in the peak of summer sunshine. But for those hikers passing through in March, it's important to be ready. When Ken and Marsha walked through in 2005, as they described in episode one, they had to fight hard for every mile. Here's what they wrote then. Quote, How hard can a day be? How slow can the miles come? We crossed over to the west, wet side of Dolly Sods and headed back into snow. But this time it was deeper, step by slow, post-holing step. It was exhausting work on the level and excruciating climbing. Milkshake and Gumdrop hit it in late February in 2006 and described the following, quote, Now locals have warned us of how desolate and windy and cold it is up there, but we thought during the day maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Were we in for an adventure? By the time we got up there, there was easily four to five fresh inches of snow, some drifts up to almost five feet high, and it was blowing completely horizontal. We couldn't keep our heads up, or the snow would sting our cheeks and fly into our eyes. So we could only stare at our feet as we walked around the bend in the road on the very tippy top. It was a complete whiteout. 
I was bummed that we got all the way up there and weren't able to get any sort of view. We got to see the trees with only limbs on one side, but all that was beyond that was white blowing snow. End quote. I don't think I'm alone, of course, in responding to these stories with a mixture of intimidation and enthusiasm. A transcontinental walk isn't supposed to be easy, after all. And it's in these encounters with adversity that we often find the best stories to tell later, when gathered around a warm fire with a cold beverage. I have a feeling we will all leave West Virginia with plenty of stories to tell. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Sharon Weekly. Be sure to reach out to Sharon and Paul if you're headed into West Virginia on the ADT. They have plenty of practical advice to share. Their contact information is available on the ADT website. Thanks as well to Gerald Swick. You can find his work, including two volumes of West Virginia Histories, at his website, geraldeswick.com. Sea to Shining Sea is available on SoundCloud, on Apple and Google Podcasts, through my DaveX USA Facebook page, and on my personal site, davex.com. Rondo, Ohio, everybody. Though we may well make it deeper.